Good morning, good morning, good morning. Everybody love the level of sleep they got last night? Man, not just a great day. I know for me, that was like that fun moment. I was up too, too late uh, working on a couple things, and I actually watched my phone change. It was depressing. <laughs> Literally, it was like, oh, thanks. Like, that's just awful. It's the worst feeling ever. But here we are. So we got to do this. Let's do this. And what's funny is I, uh, I, I've been, I told you guys that this series is just so much fun. It really has been challenging and exciting. And uh, I'm not going to lie. What I'm, what I'm preaching on today is just, it's just fun. Like it's good, wholesome fun. This is like one of those stories that you just love to talk about, love to tell. And uh, so I, 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 although I'm a little tired, I, I'm like jacked up because this is like, this is like one of those stories. I'm like, oh yeah, this is going to be a good time. And if you haven't heard this story in a while, or maybe you haven't, um, you know, read through the Gospels in a while, maybe you've forgotten about this story, uh, I hope it's one that just pops into your mind immediately and you have some thoughts about it. But it's, it's one of those, like, really cool Jesus moments that's just in the Gospel. And as we're on this journey to Emmaus, uh, just this, some would call it the seven-mile miracle, this journey from Jerusalem to, to Emmaus, the city of Emmaus, which is found after the resurrection uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, we're basically trying to create in our minds, remember that, remind you of this, remember why this series is important. We're trying to create in our minds kind of a template of how we would talk about the importance of Jesus, what the Gospel would look like. If someone stopped you and asked you, what are the key linchpin moments, what are the stories, the principles, the reasons that Jesus is an important figure to follow? And we each have our own journey, and we've been through that, and that's why the Gospels are so incredibly important on that. It's four different accounts on kind of their Jesus experience, the Jesus ministry, the real-life person they interacted with in Jesus. And so this series is an attempt, by the time we get to Easter morning, for you to be able to look at somebody and go, listen, I was on this journey. And Easter morning... When he rose, all these things leading up to it are coming back into my mind. And the full expression, if he has power over death, what does that change in all these things that I've seen before? How does that change things and who he might be and what that means for you and I? So we've been on a little bit of a journey. We talked about the importance of following Jesus completely two weeks ago expressing in baptism, believing, surrendering, and expressing that faith, inward faith, an outward expression in baptism. And last week, I basically just challenged you, maybe that there's some things going on in your life where you just need to follow Jesus and believe that he's calling you. You don't have to fix your life. That you're Actually, the calling on your life is because you're sick and that you need help. And that's exactly who Jesus came for, both you and I. And so it's fun because today we're going to pick up with one of the first times that Jesus' followers are fully committed, they're in and they're with him, and now they're interacting with him in his ministry. And I, this is one of those stories, we're going to get to the specifics in the middle, but I want you to just feel like if you were hanging out with somebody that did some things that you were above your pay grade. All right, just above your responsibility level. Anybody ever get hired for a job that you just knew you were wildly unqualified for? 
All right, just wildly unqualified for it. And the first day you show up, they're like, they're like, well, go on in there and go ahead and fix it. We're having major troubles. And you're like, uh-huh. YouTube, <laughs> help me. Uh, the disciples are about to get involved with Jesus in a real way, and it's going to be way over their head. And it is incredibly challenging for me because I feel like, and I hope it's challenging for you because I feel like it's still that way today. I feel like the ministry and the work of Jesus has things that he is up to that I just feel completely wildly out underqualified for and to be a part of. But I think we're going to find out that's because he's God and we're not. It's supposed to feel that way a little bit. We're going to be in Math chap- Mark chapter 5. Uh, this is, again, one of the stories that I want you to I want to remind you quickly of this. This is also in Matthew and also in Luke, but Mark has a very specific recording, and it's actually the, one of the first times that Mark's recording is actually longer than Matthew's and Luke's. And I think there's a specific reason to that, and we'll get to that, but we're going to basically hang out in Mark's. But if you want to reference the other two, you can. But I would, I would tell you this, and this is important for you to know, I believe Mark's gospel was written first, and Matthew and Luke are using it as references, so a lot of the details that are in Matthew and Luke come from Mark. Does that make sense? So by studying Mark today, we're actually using the first account, and the other two are using his account as their first resources or references. Does, does that make sense? Give me, a, give me a head nod if that, you're tracking with that. Okay. So just by studying Mark today and not using the other two, I want you to go and look at them on your own time, but Mark's gospel is definitely the longest and the most detailed, which is rare, because Mark normally is quick, to the point, straight to it, whatever. So this must have a deep impact on the author or the person that is recording this, and I think you're going to see why in the text. I'll point it out to you, okay? So let's start. We're in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus is doing his thing. He's preaching all over the place. He's just done this incredible teaching, and now he's crossing over. Well, Jesus had crossed over by the boat to the other side, getting away from another crowd, running into this crowd. Uh, uh, there a large crowd had gathered around him while he was there by the lake, and then one of the synagogue leaders, important, this is just a pastor-like figure that worked at the Jewish synagogue that was in that current town, so it's the church of that town's one of his past, one of those pastors. Okay, so this is an important figure in the Jewish pastoral role. All right, this is a big time guy. So this is a guy that's a religious fellow. All right, named Jairus. I've been saying Jairus all week, and I've just got corrected. So I'm gonna say it right. Jairus. Okay, came and when he saw Jesus, important. Just point this out. He fell at his feet. Sign of respect, submission. Total, I mean, this, this is a culture where men, you guys, they do not cry, they do not whine, they get their work done, they, they, they stand up straight. All right, so anytime you see a posture like this from a man, it is a reflection of just total, absolute desperation. When he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Man, if you just, whew, put it on me. You know what I'm saying? This right here, you guys, I cannot stress this enough. Little girls had literal 
no value in this culture. None. It cost their parents more. They didn't carry on the lineage. They, they, had, they were treated as property, and they were almost, almost always like, I wish you were a boy, like type. Like they, they literally had little or no value. This, this shouldn't be that big of a deal is what I'm trying to point out to you in that culture. But for whatever reason, and maybe some of you have a little daughter in here, sometimes those daughters get your heart. And she needs healed. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And I don't know if you've ever been on a mission for something that's really important, and then you've had something interrupt you, but man, that's where I'm at, my least patient. You know what I'm talking about? When, I'm, when the coffee is done, and I'm on the way to get the coffee in the kitchen, I don't have time to get juice. Some of y'all are in that stage of life, right? That was this morning. I don't have time for juice, right? Out my way, son. Need the coffee. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. A lot of speculation of what this is. For the most time, it's, it's probably a menstrual cycle problem. Some sort of issue in her hormonal balance that is causing just to have a constant menstrual cycle. Uh, that may be TMI for some of you, but it's kind of important to like, understand the context of this. In that culture, the women were actually seen as unclean when they're on that time of the month. And so they had to stay away from men, actually not be a part of the culture, have a certain distance, do certain rituals to become clean. Because in that culture, blood is not clean. And so <clears throat> I want to stress that to you because this is 12 years she has been ostracized, removed, and seen as unclean and broken. And no matter what she's done, all her effort, all her money could not fix it. Everything she's done could not fix it. In fact, it made it worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd, and she touched him. Mark gives us the reason. It's like he reads her thoughts. Because she thought, if I just touched his clothes, I will be healed. Notice that what he points out is the details of her faith. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she had been freed from the suffering. And at once, Jesus realized the power that had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Pause. Have you ever been in a mosh pit? You know what I'm talking about? Maybe a subway in a big town. Can you imagine being on the subway or being in a mosh pit and be like, hey, who touched me? I mean, this is the moment, because you see the reaction here. You see the people crowding around you, his disciples answered, yet you can ask, who touched you? Like, what? What are you talking uh, I touched you, they touched you, he touched you. Like, what do you want? Like, we, we're all touching everybody. Like a little parent. Can you imagine looking back when they know Jesus is the Son of God, and like, whoever asked this question is like, oh my gosh, I'm a moron. I don't know why I asked that question. I shouldn't ask that question. <laughs> I'm an idiot. <laughs> 
But I mean, they're just trying to state the obvious. I mean, they're head from one massive group across a lake on a boat to meet another massive group of people. Somehow this pastor guy has come up. He's talked about this girl that's dying, and now they're trying to make their way through the crowd. And then Jesus is in the middle of that going, hey, someone touched me. Hey, lots of people are touching people right now. We're, we're trying to get to the, the little girl. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Because Jesus is never in a hurry. He's never in a hurry. Man, if you hear nothing else I say, he sits with you. He does not rush through. He does not run away. He does not neglect. He does not push aside. He is perfectly patiently with you in his presence. Man, that's, that, is, that is so helpful for me to hear that in my suffering, in my pain, in my hurt, no matter the pain around him, he doesn't undermine my pain just because there's someone of greater pain down the road. I am still heard and seen, and he keeps looking for me. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and, look, look again, fell at his feet. Second time this has happened. Trembling with fear. Why would she be afraid? And told him the whole truth. <laughs> I stole a miracle. I did it. I did it. I didn't ask. I stole it. <laughs> I mean, that's what she did, right? She basically snicker barred the convenience store of a miracle. Put it in her pocket, hailed it up, and then tried to get away. <laughs> She's like, I saw it. I mean, that's what happened here. I mean, that's what she feels like happened. You know, she just walked up and went, uh. Now, why she's trembling? You know why she's trembling? She's not supposed to touch him. She's unclean. She's not supposed to be in that crowd, and she's touched all these people. Everybody's touching everybody. The disciples just pointed it out. Just imagine if someone with the coronavirus came in here. Yeah, stuff just got real. You're like, don't, don't mention that. Yeah, I know. But they came in, didn't tell nobody. Touched the cloak, healed. And then Jesus is asking, who touched the cloak? Tell me the whole story. Tell me they're not trembling with fear. They're going, I don't want to talk about it. Because the minute they, they go, well, I was really, really sick. And none of you would have been to be around me. So I hid it. I pretended like I wasn't. So I could get to Jesus. And the moment I got to him, I'm healed. Now, this is the place where the synagogue leader who's with Jesus. Oh, if you don't, if you don't, ooh, you think about this. The synagogue leader who was enforcing that rule is standing next to Jesus. And in that moment, he's expecting Jesus to react how he's been taught and what he's heard about who God is. And God would be mad because the miracle surpassed the law. The miracle blew past the rule. The miracle thought rules first, grace and mercy second. And so he's expecting Jesus to come down harsh. I mean, he's expecting him to be like, listen here, we have rules for a reason. If you need to get 
clean, you need to go to the synagogue. But he said to her, daughter, I wonder if that hit Jairus just a little different. Standing right there. Your faith has healed you. That's a big deal to the crowd. Because they're waiting for him to turn and go, yeah, get her. (laughs) She brought it in here. Take her out. Be freed from your suffering. I don't think he's just talking about the physical here. Do you? That doesn't sound like a physical statement. That talks about everything that that crowd and the lack of people and trust and community that she would have had. Go in peace. Be reconnected. Be brought back in. May things be changed. May your suffering be relieved. Hmm. Now, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus and the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. Oh, snaps. We waited too long. Told you Jesus wasn't in a hurry. Well, now he blew it. All right? Took care of her, missed the other. He's got to choose. And they said, why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, I'm Jesus. Don't be afraid. Just believe. You ever looked at something dead and thought it was dead? Knew it was dead? There's nothing you could do about it? Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was a car. Appliance. Maybe it was a cow in the field. I know some of y'all are thinking that right now. How hard would it be to just freak out and say, (laughs) that's dead. (laughs) Dead is dead is dead. There's no like, bring it back. But he says, don't be afraid. Just believe. And he did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, John, the brother of Jesus. Now, or James. Now, here's, here's why I think Mark says more than the others. Mark is recording the gospel according to who? Peter. He's one of the three that get to see the whole story. There's a crowd. There's 12. He's one of the three that he's like, you, you, and you, come with me. So when Mark, John Mark is recording Peter's words, you know why Mark's recording more words in this story? Because Peter's one of the ones that is with Jesus and gets to get this ending. When they came to the house of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. Now, this is called sitting shiva. It's a mourning ritual. They would actually even pay people sometimes to come and wail and cry and be sad and to mourn with the family. It was something that they did to show remorse and just absolute just brokenness. And it was something that would actually reveal that this girl is dead, dead. They've had time to get these whole crowds of people in here. There's a commotion of people now sitting with them. And he went in and said to them, why is this commotion of wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. 
I'm curious if you're looking for a reference. In John chapter 11, Jesus says the same thing to Lazarus before he raises the dead. He says that to Martha and to Mary. He says, hey, why are you worried about your brother? He's just asleep. And they're like, he's in the grave. And Jesus is like, you're missing the point. He's asleep. He's not dead. Why is that language important? Is because of the end of the story. They laughed at him, which most of us, let's be honest, would. Because that's not how we picture it. We picture the, knowing the ending, but this is people in the moment. They're crying. The funeral's there. It's open casket. They recognize that things are not good. And he's coming in going, ah, she's just sleeping. And they're going, no, you're wrong. At this, he put all of them out. I want to be a part of that conversation. That's just a short little thing right here. But I'm like, what did that look like? And he took the child's father and mother. Oh, my gosh. You guys ever seen the movie Tangled? I know this is like showing my kid's age right now. But the little girl's stolen at birth, and then every year the, the parents, they lift these little lanterns up because they miss her so much. You seen this? I mean, raise your hand so you know I'm with you. You're like, oh, gosh, there's like half of you. Okay, good. Anyway, they raise these little lanterns, and then every year the, the whole city just wants her to come home because she's never come home. But they have this scene with the mom and the dad. And they're just heartbroken. And the king never speaks in the movie, but he just has two scenes where just a single tear comes down and it's just this ball of terrible emotion that their daughter has been stolen. They'll never see her again. This is what I picture right here. I've sat with people and I've stood with people when they've lost loved ones. I've held hands with people when life has slipped away. And he takes the mom and the dad, and he walks to go see the daughter. I mean, I'm just trying to build the tent, see the intensity of this. Do you remember what Jairus asked for? She will live. And he took her by the hand. Oh, I just love this thought. Out of the grave, right? And he said to her, Talith Kahum! Talith kaboom, which means little girl, say to you, get on up. You gotta go to school tomorrow. <laughs> You're sleeping too long. And immediately the girl stood up. You know what she wanted? <laughs> she wanted to walk around, get her a snack, <laughs> give me some goldfish. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. <laughs> and then Jesus is going, okay, listen, this is the big ending of my whole mission, and I'm going to need you to not ruin the ending yet. So I'm going to give you strict orders to not let anyone know about this. All right? And he told them to give her something to eat because <laughs> she's in the land of the living. Now, here's what's so cool about the ending of that. Jesus has just showed that he has the power over death, but he doesn't want that out yet because he knows as soon as people are aware of that, they're going to try to kill him. And this is too early. I don't know about you, but when I finish this story, I, I figure out, I, I just want to point out three little observations to you. The first one is this. Both Jairus and the woman that's healed are at the feet of Jesus. It literally says they fell at the feet of Jesus. 
If you're looking for miracles, you better have that fall on your face moment. Not a controlled, not a at a reasonable response, not a under, this is a full, 100% committed, trembling at the feet of Jesus moment. I don't like that. I'll just tell you that right out. That's, that's a scary place to be, that I don't have some other plan B, C, or D, and that all of my eggs are in this basket. I got no other options at the feet of Jesus. The synagogue leader should have been at the temple. This woman should have been as far away from the crowd. But both of them chose to risk it all at the feet of Jesus. The second is touch. Come and lay your hands on my daughter. The woman just needs to touch his clothes. The presence and the touch of Jesus is essential in this. It's essential. It's a part of the story. And the third of the words, go in peace. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Hey, Talith Kahom, get up. Come on out. It's over. Death has no hold. You just asleep. Man, I think there's something in that. That at the feet of Jesus, I would feel his touch and hear his words. There's a subject I want to use this to just speak into, mainly because I think that with the political climate, with the current <laughs> economic climate, or even just the fear that is gripping us with this potential of what the coronavirus could be or couldn't be. Nobody really knows, right? But I think it's a great illustration for how quickly this can happen. Fear cripples faith. Whether it's a candidate, whether it's some sort of virus, whether it's an illness, or a hardship, or a difficulty, uh, fear cripples faith. It really does. You feel it in those dark places, the doubts creep in, and the hardness of life, the unknowns cripple our faith. But I think this story is fantastic because it reveals that faith cripples fear. Faith cripples fear. It removes its power. Don't be afraid. She's just asleep. Trembling at his feet. At his feet. It's okay. Go in peace. Your faith has healed you. How do we have faith in the face of fear then? How do we have faith in the face of fear? This might be something you guys just need to write down. You might just need to say it over and over and over again because we are not in a kingdom of fear. So how do we have faith in the face of fear? The first is this. Community is non-negotiable. Community is non-negotiable. If you want to have faith in the face of fear, you better not be alone. I'll just tell you this right now. And you know this when you take the trash out in the middle of the night by yourself. Flat out. You know this. 
when you get up to go pee at 2 in the morning and you're by yourself, you know this. When you walk across the parking lot after work, no one else is there. The car is the only one out there, and then that spotlight over your car goes out. They almost sleep in here. But you also know this when you get the call and she's sick. When you get the call and they're in the accident. You know this when you get the call and they say they're going another direction, they're going to let you go. You know this when they say it didn't work. There is no hope. You know this when your days start to become numbered and time seems to beat us all. And you know this when the innocent suffer and the questions flood your mind. One of my favorite examples of this is a study that was done, and I I looked, I could not find it again. It was from the Holy Post podcast. And this is one of my favorite ideas that I have learned about corporate faith. You guys, Alzheimer's patients lose themselves every day at the deepest level. And it's really sad when this gets progressive because every day you have to tell them their name and who they are and where they're from. And there's, it's very sad to watch someone you love basically just wither away and disappear. And so this ministry was working with these people, and some of you experienced this firsthand. It's devastating, and this ministry was working with these people, and they talked about how they'd never understood the importance of corporate faith more than with this community, because for so many of them, every day, someone would have to come in and look them in the eye and tell them this, your name is Dave, and you're a Christian, and this is what being a Christian means, and they would teach them the gospel. And they said so many times these people would hear it with fresh ears like they have never heard it. And almost every day they would celebrate, cry, and get excited at the thought that God would love them that much and that they had a faith. And they would be reminded of it. And they wouldn't have a faith if it wasn't for their community of people. They're reminded of it every day. And the guy said, what's crazy is that's the way the church is supposed to work with or without Alzheimer's. That's the way the community of faith is supposed to be. We're supposed to look at each other and go, this is your name came from in the face of fear. And it's a non-negotiable. You need it. Because fear will grip you in your finances. Fear will grip you in your storms come. And it's a non-negotiable. You need somebody to look at you and go, this is who you are, this is who you believe in, and he is your God. We need each other. It's the way it's designed. Truth is trustworthy in the face of fear. Predecided, predetermined, pre-studied, pre-understood truth is trustworthy in the face of fear. You will be blinded by the pain. You will be blinded by what you feel like has been uprooted. You will, you will doubt and you will run away, but in the end, I promise you, if you have put the time in and you have made your faith yours and you have found and studied and dove into the truth of who God is, who he has called you to be, in the face of fear, you have those roots 
You have that real thing. If you just come here, attend, look at some things, sometimes kind of wonder, but never plant the truth of who God is and who he calls you to be in your heart, you will struggle to have faith in the face of fear. The third thing is if faith is in the face of fear, if you're going to have faith in the face of fears, you're going to need to know this, that pain can lie. Pain can lie. I watched my uh, son the other day uh, stub his toe that one way where you forget you exist at all. You know what I'm talking about? Where you catch your little pinky toe on something and it tries to rip all the way up to your ear. And, uh, you know, he's eight, and so, you know, he doesn't know any cuss words, thank goodness. But, holy smokes, he hit it, and he was doing one of those, like, dragging it. He was like, ah! 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 You know, like, and we're all like, what's wrong? He's like, ah! 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 And, and, and what was funny is in that moment, I knew exactly what he was going through. Like, I'm like, oh, buddy. Yeah, yeah, it's gonna fall off now. Like I don't, you know, like I don't, like I'm like, yeah, I don't know what you've done. It's probably you're dead. Yeah, for sure. Just lie down. You're dead. It's over. Like it's the same way with a brain freeze, right? You're like, go watch a four year old eat a Slurpee, and they're like, you're like, oh god, you're gonna die. But pain's that way, isn't it? You know, in that moment, they look at you like, I'm, I'm dying, and you're like, no, you're not. 30 seconds. Guess what? 30 seconds later, kid's trying to do a jump, suck on that straw again. <laughs> Doing it all over again. You guys, we're, we're the same way. There's a recent study that came out that said that people that get divorced think that they're going to alleviate their pain, but actually five years later, they find that it's doubled by not sticking out their marriages. Even in the worst case scenarios, and I'm not trying to make anybody guilty for getting divorced. I'm just saying that pain sometimes rushes our decisions. Sometimes it, r- it rushes our choices. I know for me, that's the biggest thing I learned in college. Is that pain's a liar sometimes. And that actually what I was doing when I was learning to write and study and show up to school and finish my projects was how to be a man and how to be responsible through pain. And pain lies, you guys. It will make you say things. It will make you do things. It will make you run from things. Levi Luska would say, pain is your passport. Pain is your platform. Pain is the opportunity to prove what you already know is true in the face of what pain is trying to tell you. Pain can lie. Do not see pain as a curse Sometimes pain is confirmation that you're going the right way. If you've ever lift weights or been on a diet, if you're not in pain, there's things you have to work through. And in the face of fear, you have to know your faith has to push through the pain. You don't think the cross was painful? The last one is this. Your faith is forged. Your faith is forged like like steel in the forge, like iron being brought out of its little inconsistencies. 
You, it is forged. This is how you get strong faith. I would dare you to ask someone that's been a Christian for 40 years and ask them to answer these first three questions. Do you feel like community was uh, non-negotiable for your faith to last for 40 years? Or do you feel like truth has been the real reason, the trustworthiness? Do you, do, you like, do you feel like pain? You've had to work through any pain in your life as you've uh, you know, seen, your, seen your walk with Jesus last for 40 years? All of them, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I had to work hard. I had to pound truth into my heart all the time. I had to press through things that, that pained me all the time. I had people pick me up all the time. I had people had to carry me sometimes. I carried other people sometimes. It got me stronger. But that's how my faith was forged. That's how God molded me, used me, worked through me. And the reason that your faith needs to be forged through the pain and it needs to be trustworthy and it's something that you need to find in community is because we are a part of a kingdom that has no place for fear. We are a part of a community that it is not a, it's a place of absolute no fear. No matter what is going on around us, this should be the place that we cling to one another. We trust the truth. We push away the lies, even in the pain. And we let God forge us deeper in trust and reality. Listen to me. When, when the world says it's over, it's dead, God is staring us in the face and saying, don't be afraid. Believe. Don't be afraid. Believe in me. But yet again, you guys, we have to fall at his feet. Pray for his anointing purification of trust in his presence and touch. And listen to his words. I love how John paints a picture of this kingdom idea of no fear. John 1, 4, live in him and he is in us, that we have his touch, his words, his presence, that we are in his community. He has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. We have no fear. We have no fear. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God and God lives in them, then they are in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will live or so that we will have confidence in the day of judgment. And this in this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. Talith Kahom. There is nothing that his love can't overcome. It's perfect. 
Because fear has no punishment, has to do with punishment. And the one who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love because we first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. No matter if you're the synagogue leader who's going to be publicly criticized for falling at the feet of Jesus or the person that's been ostracized for 12 years and whose life is completely blind, at the feet of Jesus you will find perfect love casting out your fear. And our job is if we get to the feet of Jesus, receive his spirit, his touch, his power, and then we receive the truth of his words, it should cast out our fear to the people around us. Trust that, a community that pushes through pain to fight for that, and in the end we have a faith forged in the same love that we have received. This is a kingdom that has no place for fear. You are a part of a kingdom that has no place for fear. Let's be a community that believes that. Let's trust in the truth that Jesus is who he says he is. He is God. We have no reason to fear. Don't let the pain distract you or lie to you. May we forge our faith together in that light.